Section 4 of Chapter 19 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. The History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 19, Section 4. His confession was immediately published in several languages, and was read with very various and very strong emotions. That it was genuine could not be doubted, for it was warranted by the signatures of some of the most distinguished military men living. That it was prompted by the hope of pardon could hardly be supposed, for William had taken pains to discourage that hope. Still less could it be supposed that the prisoner had uttered untruths in order to avoid the torture, for, though it was the universal practice in the Netherlands to put convicted assassins to the rack in order to wring out from them the names of their employers and associates, William had given orders that, on this occasion, the rack should not be used or even named. It should be added that the court did not interrogate the prisoner closely, but suffered him to tell his story in his own way. It is therefore reasonable to believe that his narrative is substantially true, and no part of it has a stronger air of truth than his account of the audience with which James had honoured him at Saint-Germain. In our island the sensation produced by the news was great. The Whigs loudly called both James and Lewis assassins. How, it was asked, was it possible, without outraging common sense, to put an innocent meaning on the words which Granval declared that he had heard from the lips of the banished King of England? And who that knew the court of Versailles would believe that Barbesieux, a youth, a mere novice in politics, and rather a clerk than a minister, would have dared to do what he had done without taking his master's pleasure? Very charitable and very ignorant persons might perhaps indulge a hope that Lewis had not been an accessory before the fact, but that he was an accessory after the fact no human being could doubt. He must have seen the proceedings of the court-martial, the evidence, the confession. If he really abhorred assassination as honest men abhor it, would not Barbesieux have been driven with ignominy from the royal presence and flung into the Bastille? Yet Barbesieux was still at the war office, and it was not pretended that he had been punished even by a word or a frown. It was plain, then, that both kings were partakers in the guilt of Granval, and if it were asked how two princes who made a high profession of religion could have fallen into such wickedness, the answer was that they had learned their religion from the Jesuits. In reply to these reproaches, the English Jacobites said very little, and the French government said nothing at all. The campaign in the Netherlands ended without any other event deserving to be recorded. On the 18th of October, William arrives in England. Late in the evening of the 20th, he reached Kensington, having traversed the whole length of the capital. His reception was cordial. The crowd was great, the acclamations were loud, and all the windows along his route, from Aldgate to Piccadilly, were lighted up. But notwithstanding these favourable symptoms, the nation was disappointed and discontented, the war had been unsuccessful by land. By sea a great advantage had been gained, but had not been improved. The general expectation had been that the victory of May would be followed by a descent on the coast of France, that St. Malo would be bombarded, that the last remains of Torville's squadron would be destroyed, and that the arsenals of Brest and Rochefort would be laid in ruins. This expectation was, no doubt, unreasonable. It did not follow, because Rook and his seamen had silenced the batteries hastily thrown up by Belfond, that it would be safe to expose ships to the fire of regular fortresses. The government, however, was not less sanguine than the nation. Great preparations were made. The Allied fleet, having been speedily refitted at Portsmouth, stood out again to sea. Rook was sent to examine the soundings and the currents along the shore of Brittany. 
transports were collected at St. Helens. Fourteen thousand troops were assembled on Portsdown under the command of Meinhardt Schomburg, who had been rewarded for his father's services and his own with the highest rank in the Irish peerage, and was now Duke of Leinster. Under him were Ravigny, who, for his good service at Agram, had been created Earl of Galway, La Meillonaire and Camben with their gallant bands of refugees, and Argyle with the regiment which bore his name, and which, as it began to be rumoured, had last winter done something strange and horrible in a wild country of rocks and snow, never yet explored by any Englishman. On the 26th of July the troops were all on board. The transport sailed, and in a few hours joined the naval armament in the neighbourhood of Portland. On the 28th a general council of war was held. All the naval commanders, with Russell at their head, declared that it would be madness to carry their ships within the range of the guns of St. Malo, and that the town must be reduced to straits by land before the men of war in the harbour could, with any chance of success, be attacked from the sea. The military men declared with equal unanimity that the land forces could effect nothing against the town without the cooperation of the fleet. It was then considered whether it would be advisable to make an attempt on Brest or Rochefort. Russell and the other flag officers, among whom were Rook, Shovel, Almond, and Everston, pronounced that the summer was too far spent for either enterprise. We must suppose that an opinion in which so many distinguished admirals, both English and Dutch, concurred, however strange it may seem to us, was in conformity with what were then the established principles of the art of maritime war. But while these questions could not have been fully discussed a week earlier, why 14,000 troops should have been shipped and sent to sea before it had been considered what they were to do, or whether it would be possible for them to do anything, we may reasonably wonder. The armament returned to St. Helens, to the astonishment and disgust of the whole nation. The ministers blamed the commanders, the commanders blamed the ministers. The recriminations exchanged between Nottingham and Russell were loud and angry. Nottingham, honest, industrious, first in civil business, and eloquent in parliamentary debate, was deficient in the qualities of a war minister, and was not at all aware of his deficiencies. Between him and the whole body of professional sailors there was a feud of long standing. He had, some time before the Revolution, been a lord of the Admiralty, and his own opinion was that he had then acquired a profound knowledge of maritime affairs. This opinion, however, he had very much to himself. Men who had passed half their lives on the waves, and who had been in battles, storms, and shipwrecks, were impatient of his somewhat pompous lectures and reprimands, and pronounced him a mere pedant, who, with all his book-learning, was ignorant of what every cabin-boy knew. Russell had always been forward, arrogant, and mutinous, and now prosperity and glory brought out his vices in full strength. With the government which he had saved, he took all the liberties of an insolent servant who believes himself to be necessary, treated the orders of his superiors with contemptuous levity, resented reproof, however gentle, as an outrage, furnished no plan of his own, and showed a sullen determination to execute no plan furnished by anybody else. To Nottingham he had a strong and very natural antipathy. They were indeed an ill-matched pair. Nottingham was a Tory. Russell was a Whig. Nottingham was a speculative seaman, confident in his theories. Russell was a practical seaman, proud of his achievements. The strength of Nottingham lay in speech, the strength of Russell lay in action. Nottingham's demeanour was decorous even to formality. Russell was passionate and rude. Lastly, Nottingham was an honest man, and Russell was a villain. They now became mortal enemies. The admiral sneered at the secretary's ignorance of naval affairs. The secretary accused the admiral of sacrificing the public interests to mere wayward humour, and both were in the right. 
While they were wrangling, the merchants of all the ports in the kingdom raised a cry against the naval administration. The victory of which the nation was so proud was, in the city, pronounced to have been a positive disaster. During some months before the battle, all the maritime strength of the enemy had been collected in two great masses, one in the Mediterranean and one in the Atlantic. There had consequently been little privateering, and the voyage to New England or Jamaica had been almost as safe as in time of peace. Since the battle, the remains of the force which had lately been collected under Torville were dispersed over the ocean. Even the passage from England to Ireland was insecure. Every week it announced that twenty, thirty, fifty vessels belonging to London or Bristol had been taken by the French. More than a hundred prices were carried during that autumn into St. Malo alone. It would have been far better, in the opinion of the shipowners and of the underwriters, that the royal sun had still been afloat with a thousand fighting men on board than that she should be lying a heap of ashes on the beach at Cherbourg, while her crew, distributed among twenty brigantines, prowled for booty over the sea between Cape Finisterre and Cape Clear. The privateers of Dunkirk had long been celebrated, and among them John Bart, humbly born and scarcely able to sign his name, but eminently brave and active, had attained an undisputed preeminence. In the country of Anson and Hawke, of Howe and Rodney, of Duncan, St. Vincent and Nelson, the name of the most daring and skilful corsair would have little chance of being remembered. But France, among whose many unquestioned titles to glory very few are derived from naval war, still ranks Bart among her great men. In the autumn of 1692, this enterprising freebrooder was the terror of all the English and Dutch merchants who traded with the Baltic. He took and destroyed vessels close to the eastern coast of our island. He even ventured to land in Northumberland, and burned many houses before the train bands could be collected to oppose him. The prizes which he carried back into his native port were estimated at about a hundred thousand pounds sterling. About the same time, a younger adventurer, destined to equal or surpass Bart, Dugray-Turan, was entrusted with the command of a small armed vessel. The intrepid boy, for he was not yet twenty years old, entered the estuary of the Shannon, sacked a mansion in the county of Clare, and did not re-embark till a detachment from the garrison of Limerick marched against him. While our trade was interrupted and our shores menaced by these rovers, some calamities which no human prudence could have averted increased the public ill-humour. An earthquake of terrible violence laid waste in less than three minutes the flourishing colony of Jamaica. Whole plantations changed their place. Whole villages were swallowed up. Point Royal, the fairest and wealthiest city which the English had yet built in the New World, renowned for its caves, for its warehouses, and for its stately streets, which were said to rival Cheapside, was turned into a mass of ruins. Fifteen hundred of the inhabitants were buried under their own dwellings. The effect of this disaster was severely felt by many of the great mercantile houses of London and Bristol. A still heavier calamity was the failure of the harvest. The summer had been wet all over Western Europe. Those heavy rains which had impeded the exertions of the French pioneers in the trenches of Namur had been fatal to the crops. Old men remembered no such year since 1648. No fruit ripened. The price of the quarter of wheat was doubled. The evil was aggravated by the state of the silver coin, which had been clipped to such an extent that the words pound and shilling had ceased to have a fixed meaning. Compared with France, indeed, England might well be esteemed prosperous. Here the public burdens were heavy. There they were crushing. Here the laboring man was forced to husband his coarse barley loaf, but there it not seldom happened that the wretched peasant was found dead on the earth with half-chewed grass in his mouth. 
our ancestors found some consolation in thinking that they were gradually wearing out the strength of their formidable enemy and that his resources were likely to be drained sooner than theirs still there was much suffering and much repining in some counties mobs attacked the granaries the necessity of retrenchment was felt by families of every rank an idle man of wit and pleasure who little thought that his buffoonery would ever be cited to illustrate the history of his times complained that in this year wine ceased to be put on many hospitable tables where he had been accustomed to see it and that its place was supplied by punch a symptom of public distress much more alarming than the substitution of brandy and lemons for claret was the increase of crime during the autumn of sixteen ninety two and the following winter the capital was kept in constant terror by housebreakers one gang thirteen strong entered the mansion of the duke of ormond in st james square and all but succeeded in carrying off his magnificent plate and jewels another gang made an attempt on lambeth palace when stately abodes guarded by numerous servants were in such danger it may easily be believed that no shopkeepers till or stock could be safe from bow to hyde park from thames street to bloomsbury there was no parish in which some quiet dwelling had not been sacked by burglars meanwhile the great roads were made almost impassable by freebooters who formed themselves into troops larger than had before been known there was a sworn fraternity of twenty footpads which met at an alehouse in southwark but the most formidable band of plunderers consisted of two-and-twenty horsemen it should seem that at this time a journey of fifty miles through the wealthiest and most populous shires of england was as dangerous as a pilgrimage across the deserts of arabia the oxford stage-coach was pillaged in broad day after a bloody fight a wagon laden with fifteen thousand pounds of public money was stopped and ransacked as this operation took some time all the travellers who came to the spot while the thieves were busy were seized and guarded when the booty had been secured the prisoners were suffered to depart on foot but their horses sixteen or eighteen in number were shot or hamstringed to prevent pursuit the portsmouth mail was robbed twice in one week by men well armed and mounted some jovial essex squires while riding after a hare were themselves chased and run down by nine hunters of a different sort and were heartily glad to find themselves at home again though with empty pockets the friends of the government asserted that the marauders were all jacobites and indeed there were some appearances which gave colour to the assertion for example fifteen butchers going on a market-day to buy beasts at tame were stopped by a large gang and compelled first to deliver their money-bags and then to drink king james health in brandy the thieves however to do them justice showed in exercise of their calling no decided preference for any political party some of them fell in with marlborough near st albans and notwithstanding his known hostility to the court and his recent imprisonment compelled him to deliver up five hundred guineas which he doubtless never ceased to regret to the last moment of his long career of prosperity and glory when william on his return from the continent learned to what an extent these outrages were carried he expressed great indignation and announced his resolution to put down the malefactors with a strong hand a veteran robber was induced to turn informer and to lay before the king a list of the chief highwaymen and a full account of their habits and of their favourite haunts it was said that this list contained not less than eighty names strong parties of cavalry were sent out to protect the roads and this precaution which would in ordinary circumstances have excited much murmuring seems to have been generally approved a fine regiment now called the second dragoon guards which had distinguished itself in ireland by activity and success in the irregular war against the rapparees was selected to guard several of the great avenues of the capital blackheath barney hunslow became places of arms 
In a few weeks the roads were as safe as usual. The executions were numerous, for, till the evil had been suppressed, the king resolutely refused to listen to any solicitations for mercy. Among those who suffered was James Whitney, the most celebrated captain of banditti in the kingdom. He had been, during some months, the terror of all who travelled from London either northward or westward, and was at length with difficulty secured after a desperate conflict in which one soldier was killed and several wounded. The London Gazette announced that the famous highwayman had been taken, and invited all persons who had been robbed by him to repair to Newgate and to see whether they could identify him. To identify him should have been easy, for he had a wound in the face and had lost a thumb. He, however, in the hope of perplexing the witnesses for the crown, expended a hundred pounds in procuring a sumptuous embroidered suit against the day of trial. This ingenious device was frustrated by his hard-hearted keepers. He was put to the bar in his ordinary clothes, convicted and sentenced to death. He had previously tried to ransom himself by offering to raise a fine troop of cavalry, all highwaymen, for service in Flanders, but his offer had been rejected. He had one resource still left. He declared that he was privy to a treasonable plot. Some Jacobite lords had promised him immense rewards if he would, at the head of his gang, fall upon the king at a stag hunt in Windsor Forest. There was nothing intrinsically improbable in Whitney's story. Indeed, a design very similar to that which he imputed to the malcontents was, only three years later, actually formed by some of them, and was all but carried into execution. But it was far better that a few bad men should go unpunished, than that all honest men should live in fear of being falsely accused by felons sentenced to the gallows. Chief Justice Holt advised the king to let the law take its course. William, never much inclined to give credit to stories about conspiracies, assented. The captain, as he was called, was hanged in Smithfield, and made a most penitent end. End of section 4. Recording by Jan Raimundo.